Well, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you all this morning as we do every week when we uh, meet up together. Uh, we've been going through a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and this week we're taking a break from that series and um, spending some time just uh, thinking about the Easter celebration, our Easter um, celebrating Easter this morning. There is uh, nothing I love to talk about more than the gospel, and, um, and Easter is the perfect, uh, it's one of the many ways and times that we get to do that, and so I'm looking forward to that. But I didn't always think about the gospel as something I loved talking about. I think, unfortunately for uh, a lot of my life, I saw the gospel as good information, uh, not as good news. See, the difference between good information and good news is that good news changes you. Good information doesn't. I grew up in a Christian home, and my folks loved Jesus, and we went to church regularly, and I was part of a youth group, and in places and spaces where God was at work in my life and, and was surrounding me, and, and I'm so grateful for that experience. But for the majority of my life, I think that the gospel was just good information to me. It wasn't good news that was, that was radically changing who I was. The gospel had become something I had believed was true, but had just become old news. It was just old information, and I was ready to move on to something more interesting or something more better or more advanced. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you grew up going to church or you grew up hearing the stories or Easter is you're like, oh, another morning we get to talk about Jesus. And maybe you grew up in those patterns and the story about the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you and on your behalf has become old information to you. Something you heard a long time ago, something you've heard often repeated, but not something that's good news. Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians writes to a group of Christians who that's happened to them. And he says this, his his heart for them in this prayer he writes in the letter of Ephesians, he says, I pray that God would, uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you would know the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of your inheritance in him, and the immeasurable greatness of his power made known to you in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's heart for these Christians who had forgot that the gospel was good news. And they just saw it as some good information. But maybe you're not like me. Maybe you didn't grow up going to church. um, And maybe you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what it would really even mean to follow him. And you don't have this deep background. and You don't have all of this baggage with regards to hearing all this stuff over and over and over again. And my invitation to you this morning It's the same as my invitation to those of us who have grown up in the church and see the gospel as just good information. It's that God would open the eyes of our heart so that we might see the wonder and the majesty of all that he has done on our behalf and that it would enable and empower our hearts to respond to him as it should. See, the invitation is the same no matter how long you've known Jesus or if you are figuring out who he is to you. Because the gospel is the one thing that changes everything about us. And it's not the first stepping stone on which all other things are built. It's the center of the wheel on which everything in our life connects to. And so we want to be people who celebrate and treasure and enjoy and make the good news about the gospel central to everything we do. 
My prayer and my preparation is that God would show you the incredible nature and magnitude of his love displayed in the gospel, that he would show it to you or remind you of it this morning, and that it would change you in real, actual, life-giving ways. And since I have no power to make that happen, let's pray as we dive into our study in God's word this morning, and we'll go from there. God, thanks so much for you. Thanks for your word that you would uh, you're not a God who's hiding. You're not a God who is um, trying to be sought like a treasure at the end of a map, but you're a God who loves to reveal yourself to us. And so, God, I pray that you would. I pray that you'd keep showing us this morning who you are and all that you've done on our, on our behalf. And I pray, God, that you would well up in us a response in our hearts that comes from you. That would lead to worship and gratitude and humility in lives that are actually really different because of what you did for us. Only you can do that change in us, and so I ask that you would in and through me this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Hannah and I are super blessed uh, to have uh, two beautiful kids. We are so grateful for them. But there was a season in our lives where we weren't sure if we were going to be able to have kids. Uh, We were... um, we had waited to uh, try to have kids for a number of years after we had gotten married, and, and uh, we had been trying and trying it for over a year, and um, it felt like there was, it felt like we might never have kids. And I remember going through the phases of that and feeling like I, the first phase was like excitement of like, yeah, we're really excited, we're, we're, gonna, we're trying to have kids, we're real excited for that to happen, and then I remember uh, this period of patiently waiting, like, okay, God, I can wait. Like, it'll, it'll take time, like, it's okay, like, I can, I can be patient in that. And, and then I remember that transitioning into concern. And then I remember that transitioning into fear and frustration. Each month would pass, and there'd still be no, no news. I remember asking a friend uh, who, uh, he and his wife had just recently become pregnant, and I just said, how long did you guys try to become pregnant? He's like, you know, a day or so. And he was excited that they were going to have a baby, but it was like, he just kind of assumed, oh yeah, it just happens, it's just what, this is what you do. I still remember the morning that we found out that we were pregnant. I was in the shower with shampoo in my hair, and I see my wife's arm jab through the shower curtain, and there's a pregnancy test at the end of her arm, and then her giddy little smile kind of creeps through, uh, creeps through the curtain, and I've got soap in my eyes, and she's trying to show me what's going on, and I have no idea what's happening, Right? But we were pregnant, and I can't tell you how exciting that was. I, like, man, that was just like one of the most joyful things I had, we had ever experienced. You see, good news is only good if there's bad news. There's a lot of months of bad news before there was some good news, and it made the good news incredible. It's like, imagine if the Vikings or the Bears won a Super Bowl, like if the Packers win another one, it's like, eh, you know, they do that. If the Vikings win, it's like a miracle of the Lord Jesus himself came, and there was like it's something special that happened, right? There's been a lot of bad news if you're a Vikings or a Bears fan, right? And so the good news would be incredibly good news, wouldn't it? That's what's happening in our passage. The Vikings, win. no, um, the Vikings aren't going to win, but you could imagine what it would be like if they did, right? But what's happening in our passage this morning is that the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to Timothy, a young pastor, and he's reminding Timothy about the bad news. 
And then he's reminding him about the good news. And he starts with the bad news because the good news doesn't matter unless there's bad news. So let's read our passage um, in, in Timothy and we'll dive into our study this morning. We're in, uh, not Timothy, in the book of Titus, starting in chapter 3, verses, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of our righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Spirit whom he poured out so generously through Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul starts with the bad news. Verse 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to our own passions and desires. Elsewhere in scripture it talks about how we're dead. In, in, Rome, in Ephesians 2 it says we're dead. In Romans 5 it says, the Bible describes us as enemies of God. Paul's reminding Titus about the gravity of who we are without Jesus. He's reminding Titus about the gravity of our sin and what we actually need saving from. And maybe you've never wrestled with the weight of your sin before. I think that's especially true for those of us who have grown up in the church. We often perceive ourselves as not really needing to be saved from that much. You know, we're pretty good in comparison, we're Midwestern nice. It's not like we killed anybody, right? It's hard to see our own sin because what happens is we compare ourselves to other people rather than to Jesus. There's always someone worse than you that you can compare yourselves to. There will always be Hitler, right? But the standard that Jesus calls us to compare himself, the standard that God sets for for holiness and purity is his son Jesus, and that standard is perfection. And even on our best day, we don't get remotely close to measuring up to Jesus. See, the holiness of God is such that it's not on our worst day that we are an offense to him. It's even on our best days that we are in absolute opposition to God. See, to understand the gravity of sin, we need to compare ourselves to Jesus and we need to understand what sin is. I think so often sin is communicated as bad behavior. It's doing wrong things. It's lying or stealing. It's hurting others or or whatever the list might be. But those things are just symptoms of what's really going on. They're symptoms of the disease of sin. See, sin is the fancy word that the Bible uses to describe this condition of our hearts. And this horrible condition of our hearts, it manifests itself in a ton of outward behaviors like the ones that we see in the passage. But sin is not just those outward behaviors. They're a symptom of something much deeper in our hearts. And the bad news goes further because we're responsible for that. It's a choice that we've all made to rebel against God. See, I think the best way that I've found to understand how the Bible talks about sin is this. At its core, sin is mutiny against God. 
See, we, we want to be God. We want to be the ones that decide what's right and wrong. We want to be this, the ones that decide what's okay. We want to be the, decides, the ones that think what is good and what is right and what gives happiness and what satisfies. We want to be the ones that decide that. And so we overthrow God as king and we replace his throne with our own and we sit on it ourselves. And we say, God, I don't need you anymore. Even though you've created all things and you've made me, I reject your leadership. I reject your authority. I put myself on the throne. You see, sin is not just a mistake. It's not just a bad decision. Sin is not just brokenness in our world. Sin is rooted in our mutinous and rebellious hearts that long to overthrow the king. You see, because sin is not just a mistake, it's not just a bad decision, it's not something we can fix ourselves. See, if sin is just bad behavior, then just stop behaving badly. You don't need a savior for that, just try harder. But that's not what sin is. Sin is a disease which infects our entire hearts and it's about a a mutinous rebellion against the king. See, you can't just stage a mutiny. You can't just stage a rebellion and then take it back. You can't just say, oh, sorry, didn't mean it. Just gathered the army and started attacking stuff. But it was just a joke. Just... Just let take back, I'll, you know, it's, it's going to be okay, right? Everything's okay. No! You stage a coup, there is a penalty for that. You don't just get to say, sorry. You don't just get to stop your coup and, and everything is okay. You've all seen Pirates of the Caribbean. The penalty for mutiny is death. See, we deserve death not for lying or stealing. Those are symptoms of our rebellious heart, which has longed to overthrow the king himself. That's why the penalty for sin is death. Do you see the weight of your sin? Do I, the weight of my sin? Do you see how changing your behavior could never fix that? passage says that we're foolish and disobedient we're led astray we're slaves to our passions and pleasures we living in malice and envy filled with hate see sin lies and it kills and it deceives and it's a sickness that hides and it comes from the fact that we want to be God and it doesn't work You see, sin is a big deal, and we are all sinners, you and me, every one of us. And our sinful heart, the disease of our heart, which we have brought about by our own choosing, is not something we can fix ourselves. You can't just take your mutiny back. You need a pardon from the king you've rebelled against. That's where the passage goes. In verse 4 he says, but when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, the Savior, the one we needed to appear, he actually came. 
Jesus actually appeared. He actually came. He finally came. All of the Old Testament is a foreshadowing and a a longing for the Savior who would come and make all things right again. Jesus actually, really, physically came. He's the most famous person in all of history. More songs have been sung about him. More works of art created for him. More books written about him. Our calendar is based on the foundation of his life and his death. God actually, really, physically came. He's not an aberration or a myth. It's not a story or a symbol. Jesus actually came. And it's in him that God proves his kindness and his love for rebellious sinners like us. Verse 5 describes how he says, when the Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy. And he saved us through the washing of rebirth and by renewal by his spirit whom he poured out so generously through Jesus our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Do you see it as good news? We were hopeless rebels whose sentence was death rightly. But God himself became our savior, not because of anything we had done. In fact, in spite of everything we had done. Verse 5, it says he saved us not because of our works of righteousness, but because of his own mercy. Man, if those two words don't just quicken your heart to respond to him. There's something wrong with your heart then. You see, I, I worry that what happens is we are exhausted by trying to earn what has been freely given. See, this is the essence of religion, is that we believe that by our actions and our attitudes and our behaviors, we would merit or earn God's favor. We would get his love. We would become worthy of his acceptance. The gospel says, we can't prove ourselves worthy of God's love because we're not. The gospel is God choosing to even to know that we could never get his love. And so instead of proving ourselves to him, the God of the universe comes and seeks us out. He pursues us and comes for us when we were dead in our sins. See, verse 5 and 7 reveal that the good news about the gospel is a combination of these two powerful things. It's grace and it's mercy. See, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy for us is not receiving the penalty of death which we reserved or we deserved for our rebellion. God saved us not because of our works, but because of his mercy. And the passage goes on in verse 7 to talk about grace because grace is the flip of the coin. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. If mercy is the withholding of what we do deserve, then grace is the flip of the coin. It's getting what we don't deserve. And that's love and it's adoption and it's forgiveness. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs of his. To be justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared in right standing with God. Do you notice how in all those verses there's not a single word about your doing, about your strength, about your sorrow, about your, like there's nothing about you in any of it. God, not because of anything you did, but because of his great mercy. 
He withheld the penalty of death that was due to you, and he gave life. The king says to the rebels, I've forgiven your rebellion. I've paid the cost for you myself. You are free if you will accept it. After college, uh, my wife Hannah and I lived in La Crosse, and we became uh, friends with our neighbor Matt. And uh, we had Matt over for meals in our house all the time, and we just loved hanging out with Matt. Uh, I loved going golfing with him, and we just had a lot of, we just became good friends. And because my faith is like a real, actual part of my life, then that's something we talked about regularly, and it was something that was normal in our conversations. And I had lots of conversations with Matt over the years about the gospel and about who Jesus was and about how my faith in him was, was changing who I was. And the question that Matt could never get over is that he couldn't believe that God would condemn him for not believing in Jesus. And I didn't know how to answer Matt at that time. I didn't know how to respond to his question and his concerns. But I've thought a lot about those conversations over the years, and what I wish I could say to him now is this. Matt, you and I, we stand condemned. Jesus is not the judge, he's the rescue boat. See, denying Jesus is like being hopelessly stranded on a desert island, and when the rescue boat comes, you reject them because you think they're judging you for needing to be rescued. See, it's a, it's a refusing to acknowledge how much we need saving. We needed a rescue. We really needed a pardon, and Jesus is our rescue. He is the part in that, the only thing that we needed. And you have to understand this. God did not just wipe our slates clean at no cost. He doesn't just declare us right with him at no expense. See, Jesus died in our place for our sins. And so God's wrath and his opposition towards our sin and our rebellion, it was someone received that penalty. It just wasn't us. It was Jesus himself. And he traded his perfectly lived life, the one we should have lived, fully submitted to God and righteous in every way. And he traded it for our rebellious, our rebellious ones. It's on the cross, many people call the great exchange, where we trade places with King Jesus. You see, the cost of God's grace and his mercy wasn't free, it was priceless. You see, we need saving. We are lost and blind and dead. We're enemies of God who are slaves to our own passions and desires. But in Jesus, there's life instead of death. There's the rescue, the pardon, the one thing that we needed. See, the, pas the passage goes on in verse, verse 8 and verse 8 and 9 are the so what. He says this, this is trustworthy saying, Tim, Titus. I want, you to, I want you to stress these things as you lead this church. I want you to, to stress how important this is so that those who have already trusted in God would be careful to devote themselves to what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Here's what Paul is saying. Our good works, the things that we live, the things that we do, the way that we live and behave and act, 
Those are things that we get to do for God and with him, not things that we have to do. Furthermore, they're things that come out of already having put our hope in Jesus, not trying to win God's favor or approval or to merit it or to keep it. There's this great hymn by John Newton. I've shared this with you before. He says this, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, we respond not to God not to get something from him, but because he's given everything we could ever want to us already. And so we give our lives back to him out of humility and gratitude, out of, out of worship, out of like love and response. It's a powerful motivator that, that doesn't run out and doesn't get tired and doesn't exhaust. Earlier I talked about our need to understand the gravity and the weight of our sin to wrestle with the bad news so that the good news can be really good. And one of the most powerful motivators for living for God and obedience to him, I think, is to remember our sin. Not to dwell on it, not to sulk in it, not to be depressed by it, but to soberly remember. It's because when we remember our sin that we remember how much we needed saving. That's good for our hearts to remember that often. The Apostle Paul spent his whole life getting to respond to the gospel. This letter that you see written here is one of the very last letters that Paul would write. It's at the very end of his life. He would be executed by the Roman government within two years. And commentators will often talk about the idea of Paul's downward trajectory. And they describe it this way. Early on in Paul's writing, he describes himself this way. He says, I was the least of all of the apostles. I was the least of all the pastors. And then a few years later in his writings, he describes himself this way. I wasn't just the least of all the pastors. He says, I was the least of all of the saints, of all of the Christians. And at the end of his life, in letters like Titus and Timothy, he says, I was the worst of all sinners. And you might be thinking to yourself, Paul, like you sound like you're getting depressed. It sounds like you're thinking worse and worse of yourself. Paul is not depressed. What happens is that Paul is soberly over the decades remembered the depth of his sin. And God has increasingly showed him how desperately Paul needed saving. And what he has shown him in the same moment is this. Every single one of the times that Paul says it, it's followed by this phrase, but God who was gracious to me. See, Paul's remembering the weight of his sin so that the good news about the gospel would become even better. And the longer he lives, the more he realizes how much he needed saving and how greatly Jesus met his need. And it fuels this passion and this unyielding longing and desire for Paul to live for Jesus. He says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul was beaten and flogged. He was like oppressed in every possible way. And Paul says all of it's worth it for all that Jesus did for me. Paul went from murdering Christians to being murdered for being a Christian. 
See, the good news about the gospel changed everything about the Apostle Paul. And the good news about the gospel has changed everything about me. See, Paul and I and you were formerly enemies of God, but if we put our hope in Jesus, then we've become his friends. And we were formerly slaves to our own passions and desires. But in Christ, we're beloved children of his. We were formerly living in hate, but now we're loved by our perfect father. You see, the gospel changes everything. You see, Easter is a proclamation. It's a celebration of the good news about the gospel which is not just about Jesus' death, but about his resurrection. Because King Jesus is actually alive. He's not dead. We don't try to find his tomb to put flowers on it. There is no tomb. In Revelations 1, Jesus says to John this way. He comes down to meet John in this rough state he's in, and he says, Fear not, John. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, but behold, I live forevermore. I hold the keys to death and hell. It's good news that King Jesus is alive. His death is not the end, but his life ongoing. And Jesus is not just alive. Jesus is the ruling, reigning king of all the universe. And his life is what empowers us to live for him so that we would respond to him with our lives given back to him as an offering of worship to him. See, Jesus doesn't just save us so that we can wait around to get to heaven. He saves us so we can make much of him both now and forever. Verse 7 says this, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I think most often we read those words eternal life and we think that it's about a quantitative difference, a life that is quantitatively longer or does not end. But when you look at the language that it's written in, it's not a quantitative thing that's being described, although that's true. It's a qualitative thing. The life eternal is not just one that doesn't end, but it's one that's as it was intended to always be. And so when John said, when Paul says that you would see the hope of eternal life, he's telling Titus, remember that the gospel changes how you relate to God. And he's inviting him to remember all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked with God and were his friends. So the gospel returns us to eternal life, right life, full life with God as it was always intended to be. But the only way that we live for God, the only way that our lives are actually really different because of all that he's done is if the gospel is not good information, but if it's good news. You see, good information doesn't change you. Good news does. So how do you know if the gospel is good news or good information? This is not an exhaustive list, but just a few things. Can you keep the good news about the gospel to yourself? Good news is something that must be proclaimed. It's a new baby that you long to tell your friends about. It's a wedding that you've so desperately longed for. It's the end to the war that feels like it's gone on forever. You have to tell people about it. 
And if the gospel that I have proclaimed to you is something you feel no urge for others to know or to be changed by, then that is evidence that it's good information and not good news. Do you sense the gravity of your sin and its weight, or do you just feel like you're a pretty good person? See, the gospel will never be good news unless you realize how much you needed saving. It'll just be some good information that someone died for somebody else. Well, I didn't really need it. But when we see the weight of our sin, we see the grandeur of the, the Savior who would come for us. What is your motivation for living rightly, for the good works that you do, for your right behavior, and for all of those kinds of things? Are you trying to please God and earn his favor? Are you trying to make up for past mistakes that you feel guilty about? Are you trying to do it because you feel like it's a, a duty or an obligation? If that's the case, then the gospel is probably good information and not good news. You see, the good news about the gospel is that God's pleased with you if you're in Christ. He's fully pleased with you. You cannot improve on your standing because you cannot improve on Jesus. And so what it results in is a life that is passionately and longingly given back to the Savior. It's one full of humbleness and gratitude, of, of deep thankfulness and of worship. Those kinds of motivations give life as we respond. And see, Jesus is risen and ruling. He empowers us to respond that way. You see, even for those of us who have received the gospel as good news, it's easy for us to fall back into those patterns of thinking. It's easy for us to forget that it's good news and to think of it as good information. It's news that maybe has become old and stale because we forgot. We forgot how much we needed rescue. We forgot how great the Savior was, and we take for granted what we once deeply cherished. So the question is, how do you change the way that you see it? How do you change from seeing the gospel as good information to good news? You don't. God does it in you. See, God's the one that changes how you see what he has done and who he is. And so you ask him that he would show you, that he would change your heart, that you would see it as good news, not just as good information any longer. God longs that you would, that he wants you to ask him to do it. He's waiting that you might ask him to change your heart in it. Ask him that he would cause you to remember your sin, not to be depressed by it, not to, be, not to just be sorrowful for the sake of sorrow, but to feel the weight of it so that you might see how good the gospel is. Horatio Spafford pen these beautiful words. He says, though Satan should buffet, though his trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. And shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. It's been nailed to the cross I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. 
You see, I'm so grateful that Jesus died for me, but I am equally grateful that he is risen and reigning and ruling so that I can give my life back to him. Oh, that you would see the gospel as good news and not good information. That it would motivate you endlessly towards worship and passion and giving your life back to King Jesus. And that you wouldn't be able in any way to keep it to yourself. But it would become good news that wells up in you that must be proclaimed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and all that you've done. God, our sin was, our sin is a, it totally separates us from you. God, and we needed a rescue and you came. We were hopeless and dead without you, but you came. You came that we might have life, that we might have not just life now, but life eternal, not just life that doesn't end, but life that it's as it's intended to be, in right relationship with you, walking with you and talking with you as our friend. King Jesus, might you cause us to see the gospel as good news as the rescue that we needed. God, and would you cause it to to remain good news within us, good news that changes us, that produces in us humbleness and gratitude and worship and lives that are passionately and relentlessly given back to you. God, we can't change our own hearts, only you do. So I ask that you would. For those here this morning that might not know you as their savior, God, I pray that you would that you would reveal to them the gospel as good news of their saving. Might they accept it and receive it. God, and I pray for those of us who have, have received the gospel as good news, that it might remain and stay good news and not become good information. God, change us so that we might live for you and exist for you and be for you. Amen.